0: You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. All right. Well, as Greg mentioned, that is the uh, gospel according to Mark that we're in today. So feel free to pull up uh, the gospel of mark on your phone or in your Bible uh, in chapter five, where we're going to be today. And if the sermon outline helps you follow along, it's there as well to be helpful in that regard. Uh, Mark is one of four Gospels written to give accounts of Jesus' life uh, by some of his earliest uh, followers, some of his earliest disciples. Matthew is kind of known for Jesus' moral teaching, like the Sermon on the Mount telling us how to live a a godly life. Luke is known for a lot of Jesus' great parables, like the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the Good Samaritan. John is known for the gospel that, where Jesus talks a lot about his theology, great passages like John 3.16 or Jesus' I Am statements. Uh, Mark is known primarily as the gospel of action, where Jesus is doing things, getting things accomplished. Um, and in these actions, we are kind of left as the reader to ask important theological questions about, so what? Like, why is it important that Jesus did these things? What do we make of these miracles or these confrontations or these triumphs that Jesus has? What do we do with them for our life today? And in the miracle that Greg read a moment ago, and it's part of a longer passage we'll talk about this morning, there's really sort of two twin stories that are put together that both have this common theme of desperation, of desperation, of two people that had nowhere else to turn, so they turned to Jesus and Jesus' healing of them. Now, this begs an important question is, is desperation good? I shouldn't say it begs the question. It raises the question, is desperation a good motivation for faith? Should our faith be driven by desperation? Now, let me ask it in a different context. Um, if you were to propose marriage to someone and you were to say, sweetie, I'm so desperate. You're the only one. No one else would be willing to say, yes, what about you? Not not a strong look, right? Or if you were asked in a job interview, why do you want to work at, you know, whatever the company is? And you said, well, to be honest, I don't really have skills that are transferable to any other company, and I don't know how to do anything else, and this is the best I got, right? Uh, I mean, we, we don't tend to value desperation as a concept in our culture. We tend to sort of laugh at it, kind of think it's pathetic, and kind of ridicule it. Um, But that raises some important questions about our faith, Uh, and maybe specifically in this passage. What do we do with desperation when it comes to God? Is desperation a good or compelling or valid reason to turn to God? some of you, I imagine, would say no to that, or maybe it at least would make you uncomfortable to say yes to it, because you'd like to think, I'd like to think my faith is driven by my intellectual inquiry, or my soft heart towards God, or my deep commitment of faith, not that I'm desperate and have nowhere else to turn. That seems kind of, I don't know, uh, lame, for lack of a better word. I I was desperate for a word there. That's the best I could come up with. (laughs) Well, keep those in the back of your mind as we talk about these twin stories. The the passage kind of breaks into three parts. The first part is Jairus, this ruler of the synagogue, coming uh, and, and sort of desperately availing himself of Jesus. And then he gets interrupted in the second part of the passage, where this other desperate figure, she goes unnamed in the passage, but church tradition calls her Bernice, so we'll call her Bernice too. And then uh, it, the third part of the passage is Jairus coming back even more desperate for reasons we'll see soon enough. So let's jump into it in Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Um, this is part of a larger passage in Mark 5, where Jesus is crisscrossing the Sea of Galilee a number of times, and various miracles are occurring. Pastor Tim talked about one of them last week when we talked about the calming of the sea. He'll, he'll be preaching again next week on what happened when Jesus crossed the sea in, in Gerasene um, and how he was rejected there. And this is what happens when he comes back in verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. By the way, uh, it's pretty uncommon that Mark names people, so it's worth noting that he says Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. So what makes Jairus a compelling figure? Why would Jesus respond to Jairus' request for help? Well, there's the obvious thing that his daughter is sick, and there are a few things that we're more sympathetic to in that culture or in ours as a little child who is sick at the point of death. On top of that, though, Jairus is also a compelling figure in the community. He's described here as a ruler of the synagogue. That doesn't mean that he was a professional rabbi or a scribe or a Pharisee. Uh, A synagogue ruler was kind of what we would think of as an elder of a church today. It's someone who had another vocation and they were highly esteemed in the community and they were sort of elected or appointed to be the one who took care of the synagogue or took care of what we would think of as a church. So when you hear Jairus, think about some of the people who have done everything right in life from our perspective and yet is dealt this terrible blow of a sick child at the point of death. Think of a a Bob Wisman or a Travis Green or a Glenn Fukumara, someone that, or a Greg Bartleson, someone that has a leadership role and yet in this moment of desperation has nowhere to turn. And Jairus, to his credit, crosses this cavern between the religious establishment that he's a part of that has sort of put up walls against Jesus throughout the Gospel of Mark and crosses over that and puts himself at Jesus' feet and says, I'm desperate. I'll do anything, right? Would you just come and lay hands on my daughter? This is a provocative request from Jairus for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that he's asking Jesus to touch a sick child. Now, when we hear that, we think in lenses of germs and contagion and masks. But for Jesus and his original listeners, they would have thought through the lens of ritual cleanness and uncleanness, the risk of touching someone who is either ill or deceased, causing them to be ritually unclean. And Jairus has this provocative request, would you come and use the good available to you for someone who is on their way to death? This is a, a, a big ask from Jairus and a desperate ask, but one that's understandable from parents. After all, wouldn't you do this if you were in his shoes? And then there's this little line in verse 24 that's worth noting where it says that Jesus went with him. Now, in some ways, this is just a plot line. It just tells us what is happening. But it's also rich with doctrine, right? Jairus is part of this group that has put themselves against Jesus. And I don't know if you're petty enough to do this, but some of us would cross our arms if we were Jesus at this point and say, oh, now that you're desperate, you want me on your side, right? Where was this faith? Where was this interest when, in chapter 3, all of your religious elite friends were calling me a blasphemer? Right? Where was this interest earlier? Right? Oh, you want, it, you want me on your side now? Right? But Jesus is kind. He's not harsh like that. He's not someone who's going to treat people with that sort of vengeance or rudeness or harshness that, that we would. Uh, to our surprise, Jesus uh, goes with Jairus on this essential trip to heal his daughter. And uh, a great crowd follows him, it says in verse 24, and thronged about him. You can sort of think of this as the ancient version of a, an ambulance going somewhere that has to find its way uh, to, to heal someone. And as you would do if you were driving home after service and an ambulance uh, was driving down the road, what would you do? You'd get off to the side of the road. You wouldn't ask any questions. You would assume that they must, if their lights are going and their sirens are blaring, they must have something urgent or some urgent business. Who's the jerk that cuts off an ambulance and says, hey, hey, hey no, I need attention right now, right? This woman. Verse twenty-five. I'm not saying she's a jerk. I just say I'm just trying to set the context. If we, if we, if we, don't, if we don't acknowledge desperation, it's, we're going to miss the point. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and spent all she had, and was no better, but grew worse. Well, if Jairus is the social insider who everyone agrees deserves credit from God and deserves Jesus' attention, this woman is the social outsider. For she has, no, um, she has no dad to argue for her the way that Jairus' daughter does. She has no family members at all to argue for. She has no wealth to commend her. She has no standing in the community. All she has is this reputation. In the passage, she doesn't even have a name. Uh, she has nothing to commend her to get Jesus' attention. All she has is this condition, this, what's described here as a discharge of blood. and the Greek, that would seem to imply a uterus hemorrhage that's caused her to, to bleed for the last 12 years. You can imagine both the, the physical pain that would accompany that as well as the um, social costs that would come with that. To, to, understand why, to understand why that would be a big deal socially in Jesus' day, remember how the Old Testament talks about blood. In the Old Testament, blood is the source of life. It's it's where life resides. And so it's why you can't eat an animal with the blood still in it. According to Levitical food laws, the blood has to be strained out. And it's why um, whenever you come in contact with blood, of whatever type, it can make you ritually unclean. If you are the one who's bleeding or or having some sort of discharge of blood, you're ritually unclean until it stops and you do the uh, required cleansing rituals. Now, I know that seems archaic, that seems odd, but, but stick with me here for this passage because it'll help you understand why this woman is in such a desperate situation. So think about all the ways that this had cost this woman socially over the last 12 years. 12 years of blood meant 12 years of not being able to participate in any of the religious life of Israel. No going to synagogue, no going to temple. It meant 12 years of not getting to participate in any ritually clean meals, which meant no holidays, no sitting around the table with people. In fact, no sharing a meal with anyone who's concerned about ritual cleanness at all. It meant 12 years of uh, no sexual intimacy with a spouse. It meant 12 years of no sitting on a couch with anyone who was concerned about ritual cleanness. It meant 12 years of every time you walked into a room, walked down the street, if you wanted to uh, be, practice social convention, shouting unclean the way that lepers would. That's what this woman has experienced for the last 12 years. And you can imagine why she was so desperate to find a medical cure. And Mark says she spent all she had seeking out doctors who had not made her better, but only worse. Well, to understand why, you've got to know what the cures were for a uterine hemorrhage in this day. One cure that some of the rabbis record is uh, finding an oat that had not been processed in the dung of a cow and eating that oat. Oof. Right? Another cure was eating rubber that had been mixed with wine. Right? Now, there's a temptation here 2,000 years later to say, oh, how backwards, how horrible, how misogynistic, how... Uh, how hurtful. Um, okay, and that's, I suppose that's true. Maybe 2,000 years from now, they'll look back on some of the things we have in our medicine and say the same things about us. Uh, the point isn't so much to, to judge the medicine as to identify with how the woman is experiencing life at this point, the desperation that she's having. She's sort of thrown all she has, all her faith, if we can use that word, at the medical establishment of her day, and she's been let down. I imagine there's some of you who feel that same way. You've thrown all your resources at trying to solve a medical problem in your life. And it may not be rubber mixed with wine, but you feel like the money has gone down the drain and your health has just gotten worse and worse and worse as well. And in that moment of desperation, Bernice turns to Jesus. Um, It says in verse 27, she had heard reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Okay, good idea, bad idea, good idea, bad idea. What do you think? Where where does she get this idea that if I touch Jesus' clothes, I'll be better? Is that somewhere in like Jeremiah or Ezekiel or something? Somewhere in the Old Testament that you don't remember reading? Well, if it is, I haven't found it and none of the commentaries seem to have found it. This seems to be a pagan idea. She's imported it from Roman concepts of magic that holy people's garments could be contagions for the goodness of the gods, it's nothing from Jewish faith or religion. There's no biblical concept behind this. Jesus never says, touch my clothes if you want to get better. Like this, this is not his concept of healing. Now, this is really interesting to me, because in her desperation, she uses bad doctrine, or at least bad practice of doctrine, out of a genuine faith in Christ. So what's the response? How does Jesus respond? Does he correct her? Is he mean towards her? Is he harsh towards her? I mean, Should we forgive her because she hasn't been able to go to synagogue for 12 years and hear the scriptures taught? Um, On top of that, though, what is is in the Old Testament is this concept of ritual cleanness. What she's doing is saying, essentially to borrow the ambulance metaphor, my needs are more important than this other person's, and I'm going to touch Jesus' cloak, make him ritually unclean and his clothes ritually unclean because I'm so desperate for his healing. I don't know. I can understand why Bernice would do this, but I could understand why Jairus would be mad, too. Uh, if we were operating on a zero-sum concept of God, or God's blessing on us, where it's either you get it or I get it, it would seem like that they're at odds with one another. But how does Jesus respond in verse 30? Or verse 29. Immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she had healed of her disease. After 12 years of trying everything, and it slowly not working, immediately it works when she touches Jesus. In verse 30, Jesus, perceiving in himself the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. On the surface, this seems like Jesus is kind of a live wire, some sort of electrical current that just is out there healing people and he doesn't even know what's going on. He's like, someone got healed, who was it? But I don't think that's Jesus' point. You might remember in the garden after Adam and Eve sin and they hide from God. How does God respond? With a rhetorical question, right? Where are you? And why does God ask Adam that? Because he wants Adam to tell on himself. He wants Adam to reveal himself. Some of you who are parents do that with your kids. They show up with fudge all over their mouth and fudge all over their hands, and you say, Did you eat the cookies? No. <laughs> There's fudge all over your mouth and fudge on your hands. Did you eat the cookies? No, I didn't eat the cookies. <laughs> and we, we say, we, we, want, we want you to tell us. because we, we want you to practice sort of telling on yourself, even if I know what the right answer is. And I think as we'll see in the rest of the passage, Jesus has a reason for wanting to provoke this woman to publicly acknowledge who she is. Because let's be honest, Jesus could have just turned around and winked at her and said, like, you're cool, and moved on. But I don't know. That winking thing has gotten a laugh at every service. I think it's just the idea of Jesus winking. It's just hilarious to us. Um, but I think Jesus wants this woman's healing to be made known. Look, look what happens uh, in verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Why do you think there was fear and trembling as she approaches Jesus here? Maybe... Maybe she's scared about what she's done. Maybe she's scared she'll get in trouble. Maybe she's scared she'll get a lecture or that Jesus will be harsh with her. Maybe she's scared that Jesus is going to say, oh, you've ruined it. You've cut off the ambulance. I can't go heal the little girl now. It's your fault. Right? Maybe she's uh, expecting that, that Jesus is going to treat her like so many people, so many maybe men especially have treated her over the last 12 years as someone disgusting or someone uh, worth ignoring, best case scenario. But look at Jesus' tenderness here. I want you to see Jesus' heart in verse 34. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Man, if I could ask you to underline one verse in that passage, uh, or one one word in that passage, it's daughter. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Remember, this is a story about daughters. It's about Jairus and his daughter, right? That that Jairus' daughter has her father to advocate for her, and Bernice has no one to advocate for her. But she does, doesn't she? She has Jesus. Jesus looks at her and says, Daughter, right? daughter, your faith has made you well. Not my cloak, right? This, is no, this isn't like some special Doctor Strange cloak that like made you better on its own. This is your faith in me. It's the object of your faith that has made you well. It's me that's made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Um, there's a temptation sometimes to think, well, Maybe if I, if, I, if I just had more faith or I had better faith or I could, I could muster up more faith, then maybe God would do more stuff for me. But passages like this make it really clear that it's, it's not so much about uh, the amount of faith or the quantity of faith or even the, the, the stability of our faith that's important as it is the object of our faith. For Bernice, uh, her faith was mixed with syncretistic Roman concepts of religion It was just touching the very back edge of his cloak. It was feared, it was mixed with misplaced concepts of fear and trembling about Jesus' character. And yet she was still whole and made well because Jesus is good. This is the question sometimes theologians will talk about this as subjective faith versus objective faith. Subjective faith is uh, what we experience of in our own hearts, the, the amount of faith that we have in God. But the object of our faith is really what ultimately matters in the New Testament. Who is your faith in? Not how tentative is it or how small is it, but, but where is your faith? Our friends in colder parts of the country use this illustration that I found really helpful of a frozen pond. Now, um, if you've ever been somewhere where, where the water freezes over, uh, amazing concept, we don't have it here, but elsewhere in the world. Um, you'll know that if you go out on uh, ice that's like a half inch thick or a quarter inch thick and there's a current going underneath, it doesn't matter how much faith you have, that eighth of an inch thick ice is not gonna hold you up if you're 220 pounds like me, right? It doesn't matter how confident you are. In fact, maybe the confidence that you're bringing is gonna be part of the problem if you start stomping up and down on the ice, right? You're gonna go right through. On the other hand, if you go on a small pond where there's no moving water, and it's 30 30 below zero like it is in Minnesota in the winter, and the ice is seven feet deep, it doesn't matter how tentative you are or how anxious you are about it, or how concerned you are about it, or how much doubt you have about it. If the object of your faith can hold you, that's ultimately what matters. You're, you can be as tiptoey as you want on that ice, or you can jump up and down. It's what, the object of your faith that is truly important. And for Bernice, the object of her faith is Jesus, who looks at her and says, your faith has made you well. Or if we want to translate that literally, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Not just that, Peace in the biblical sense isn't just an internal sense that everything's okay, but it's a it's a whole person sense of shalom that everything has been made as it was supposed to be. Now, part of me wants to just end the passage here and say, "Isn't that great that God cares about the Bernices, not just Jairus? Isn't it great that, that uh, God cares about the person who's overlooked, not just the person who's important in the world?" But I can imagine sort of Jairus standing on this side of the pulpit, saying, "Like, what about my daughter? What about my daughter? What about my daughter?" What about my daughter? If Bernice is touching the edge of his cloak, I imagine Jairus sort of pulling Jesus by the arm, like, this is all very nice, but can we get going now? Can we move towards this girl who's going to die if you don't do something? Verse 35 says, While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. Jesus' friends assume, I'm sorry, Jairus' friends assume that death has closed the door on Jesus' potential to help. That he may, be a good ru, he may be a good teacher, he may be a good uh, teacher of scripture, he may even be a healer, but death is final and that Jesus can have no authority in that realm. And Jesus turns to Jairus and says, Do not fear, only believe. This juxtaposition of fear and belief comes up again and again in Mark. It just came up with the crossing of the sea uh, in chapter 4. And Jesus is going to challenge Jairus with the same challenge that's before us. Are we going to function out of fear or out of faith? And Jairus, to his credit, believes. And he follows with Jesus into his home. Now, Bernice uh, and her healing was was public, and Jesus insisted that it be made public. And yet, when it comes to the prominent members of the community, Jesus insists that it be made private. He allows no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John. And then when they get to his home, it says in verse um, 39—I'm sorry, verse 38—they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly— by the way, if you notice in verse 35 to 38, Jairus is not referred to by name. He's repeatedly called the ruler of the synagogue or just the ruler. It seems uh, like it's important that for Mark that we see here that Jairus's prominent position in society does not uh, spare him the realities of death, even death in his family. Um, and it says in verse 39, when he had entered, he said to them, "Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping." Now, I wish we had more time to talk about Jesus' concept of death here and why he refers to this little girl as sleeping. Um, But they're not really interested in his answer. In fact, in verse 40, it just says they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went inside to where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her in Aramaic, Talafakumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Jesus demonstrates kindness a second time with another daughter, this time the daughter of Jairus, and heals her disease in the same way that he has healed Bernice's, immediately, completely, and definitively. And it raises so many questions for us as we read this, but the thing I really want you to notice is the kindness of Jesus in this moment. That Jesus is kind towards Bernice, he's kind towards Jairus, he's kind towards each of their demonstrations of faith, as different as they are. And that Jesus has the same sort of kindness towards you. Now, will that mean that every disease in your life is healed? Of course not. You know that, right? In fact, it wouldn't be true for Bernice and this little girl the rest of their life. One day they would die, just like you and I one day will die. But when Jesus went to the cross for us, And when he was resurrected from the dead, he provided a final and definitive conquering of illness and death for all time. That even though one day you'll be at my memorial or I'll be at your memorial, that we can look forward together to the hope of everlasting life with Christ. He meets us in our desperation. He's enough for us. Some of you are in the midst of that desperation right now because you're in in circumstances that feel desperate. Uh, And they are desperate. I don't mean to disparage them. They may be related to health. They may be related to something else. And there may be a sense where you feel like, can I really, is it, is it right and good to turn to God in the midst of this? Or is this being selfish or being opportunistic? Is God gonna look at me as someone who only turns to him when I need something? I hope that the scripture helps you see the kindness of God towards you. That in our desperation, our moments of awareness of desperation, God is pleased to listen to us pleased to come near to us, and that he loves you and sees you as his son and daughter. Conversely, some of you are in very comfortable circumstances right now. That there's very little you would describe in your life as desperate. Annoying, maybe, but not desperate. Um, and uh, when you think about it, you, you haven't really turned to God in much of anything of substance in a while, because there's not anything sort of driving you in his direction. For you, the prayer this morning might be, God, help me see my desperate need for a savior. And then the third group, um, some of us are in moments right now where we have felt desperate in the past and we felt let down by God. We felt like we tried to touch Jesus' cloak metaphorically and nothing happened. And the idea of him helping us or, or turning towards us in kindness feels like a loss of a dream. I hope that in this passage and in our hope of life everlasting, we can turn to God in prayer and say, God, I'm desperate to see your goodness. I'm desperate to trust in life everlasting. God, help me to have even small faith in the greatness of who you are. Well, um, my hope in prayer as we look at this passage and we, we sort of work on this together is not that, all, that we'll all develop tremendously great faith, so that would be awesome, but that our faith will be in the right person, and Jesus Christ together, and that we'll encourage one another, whether you're prominent like Jairus or you feel like an outsider like Bernice, that all of us, our faith is in the same person, in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, I pray for my friends here who are really desperate this morning. Uh, maybe it's something related to their health, maybe it's something related to their marriage or something related to their circumstances, and they feel like they're just sort of groping around in life uh, and groping around for you. Maybe they feel guilty about that, or they feel embarrassed by that, or they feel angry about that. Um, God, I pray that they would hear your word. They would hear this line uh, from that you said to Bernice, of, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And they would see your love for them, your kindness towards them, and their hope of life everlasting in Christ. God, I pray for those of us who are, who are living in situations at this stage of our life that are comfortable, where there's not a lot of desperation being driven by our circumstances. God, help provoke our hearts to see our desperate need for a Savior, our desperate need for you. And even if our circumstances aren't desperate, uh, that, that help us to have the faith of a desperate man longing hard after you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.